Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Lighthouse Faith Podcast, where we are moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book Lighthouse Faith. Well, the word synodality has become a flashpoint for controversy and conflict within the hierarchy of Catholicism, particularly among the bishops. And there's hardly a bishop who, who spoke more against the synodal way than Cardinal George Pell of Australia, who recently died. He called the synod way a toxic nightmare. Pell was the voice of conservative Catholicism and a stalwart supporter of Catholic doctrine and theology, but he was also filled with the compassion and mercy of Jesus. Before his death, he penned an article for The Spectator um, on the Senate and said in part, what is one to make of this popery, this outpouring of New Age goodwill? It is not a summary of Catholic faith or New Testament teaching. It is incomplete hostile in significant ways to the apostolic tradition and nowhere acknowledges the New Testament as the Word of God, normative for all teaching and faith and morals. The Old Testament is ignored, patriarchy rejected, and the Mosaic Law included, including the Ten Commandments, is not even acknowledged, or not acknowledged, I should say, even, that was my editorial there. So synodality is the title of massive reforms that the Pope is looking to make within Catholicism. It involves discussions among membership to bringing everyone into the church, to have the proverbial big tent. Now, here's a description from the dossier handed out by the Secretary General of the Synod explaining what the explaining what the Senate is. He says, a Senate is a gathering of the faithful in order to listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church and asking her to be and to do. This gathering can involve the faithful in different ways, pastors and lay people, bishops with the other ordained ministries, pope with bishops, etc. Pope Francis calls it an exercise of mutual listening conducted at all levels of the church and involving the entire people of God. It involves uh, an encounter, listening, and discernment of spirits. Now, Cardinal Pell, as I said, called it a toxic nightmare because this idea of listening, dialogue, and discernment does not involve holding up the name of Jesus or teaching the basic tenets of Christianity. Now, here to explain why the Senate way has become so controversial is Father Robert Srico. He is the founder of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Welcome, Father. Great to be with you, Lauren. Thanks for having me. This is, you know, the Synod way, this is, when I first heard about this and, and its parameters, it sounded so much like Vatican II, but in a different way. This is kind of the Pope Francis version of Vatican III. That's, that's my take. What, is, what do you say? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, in the 70s, I was involved on the left, and it sounds like the young Trotskyite League. You know, it's, it's <laughs> all these voices kind of coming together and, uh, you know, pushing each other around. I think it's, I think Cardinal Pell really put his finger on it. It, it is a nightmare. And, it, and it's not so much in what it's saying yet, because that's still to occur in October, but what it is not saying, the anchors it's not putting in place, the 
the assumptions, the presuppositions of Christianity, as you've outlined, and the fact that the president of the Senate, by the way, parenthetically, I just want to say to your mm-hmm. evangelical listeners, if you feel confused, you're not alone, <laughs> because most Catholics listening to this stuff will be completely confused about what's going on. And that's part of the danger of this thing. So the president of the Senate, uh, Cardinal Horrick of Germany, has is presiding over their own synodality, synodality process mm-hmm. in Germany. And that has gone completely off the skids, according to Pope Francis. Don't know that. And you know that's got to be bad. (laughs) Yeah, no, it it really is. So if that's going to infect the conversation in October, then this is what what Pell uh, really nailed. And I think it's important to mention that the London Spectator article that you've referred to was written and ready for publication before Pell died, who was not anticipating dying. He was just he just went to the hospital for hip surgery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and it came out, they they published it on the day of his death. So um this has broken up broken open the whole discussion now. I think after Benedict's death, after Pell's death, which just followed uh, upon that, and then the book that came out by Genswang, the secretary mm-hmm. to Pope Emeritus Benedict, uh, and then Cardinal Mueller's book, and then these new essays by Pope Benedict. Uh, a lot of this stuff hasn't circulated internationally yet because most of it is in Italian. Uh, I think the Senate in October is going to be a pre-conclave in a way, if the Pope is healthy enough to make it to October. Yeah. That's another thing to bring into consideration. Um, and I'm, I want to get to that, but I also want you brought up the uh, the German Cardinal um, Jean-Claude Hollerich. And in that London Spectator article, uh, Cardinal Powell says uh, of him, he says, has publicly rejected the basic teachings of the church on sexuality on the grounds that they are uh, that, that they contradict modern science. In normal times, this would have meant that his continuing as re, uh, relator, I guess, was inappropriate, indeed impossible. So the fact that yeah. Pope Francis has said something against it is, do you think he'll change his mind in terms of, you know, that, 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 that Cardinal Holerick will actually lead the, lead the way in this? I would, if I had to guess, I'd say there's a 50-50 chance that he'll be replaced because it's going to depend on how the Germans respond to the Pope's admonitions about their own process of synodality in Germany. If thus far they have just said, oh, well, thanks for your opinion. Uh, We're going ahead with this. If they don't stop this strain, then I think the Pope is going to have to do something. At some point, he's going to have to do something. Or he's going to have a major train wreck in October. Oh, my gosh. Well, this this is the optimal year because, you know, as I said, I have this dossier explaining, um, you know, what is the uh, the synodal church. And it shows that 2023 basically is a seminal year. Uh, they've got uh, events happening in Africa, Europe, Middle East, South America. Right. It's all happening in 2023 and it's all leading to October. So what happens in October? Right. So in October, the bishops and certain uh, participants, listeners and other participants, these would be uh, heads of bishops conferences or other people that are, um, you know, invited to participate. They'll come in for a broader discussion of synodality, just the way it's been going on. I mean, virtually every parish in the world has had some kind of meeting 
where they can discuss these certain very vague questions and anybody can say anything they want. Uh, and then all of that material goes to the bishop. That's sent to the bishop's conference. This is going on all over the world. That's sent to the Vatican, and it's supposed to be redacted, and those questions come Mm-hmm. Uh, to the process in October. Um, you're going to have a lot of players there. You're going to have um, probably the presidents of most of the the major bishop conferences, the Episcopal conferences throughout the world, and a good chunk of cardinals, which is going to be very interesting because the cardinals have had very rare opportunities to meet yeah. for the last 10 years. Um, so uh, that's going to be a real event to watch. Yeah. You know, this is this is really a reflection of Pope Francis's personality. This is how he yeah. operates. You know, when he became pope, he talked about listening and discerning among the bishops. But he seemed only to really want to hear from bishops who agreed with him. I mean, that, you, you, that's my take. You know what else he said at the beginning of his pontificate? It was an address to youth. He said, go out and make a mess. <laughs> <laughs> well, here we have it, you know, but I, I do think, you know, in his AP interview, Uh, He said that he wants to hear criticism, Uh, but he's very, you know, if you're watching this pontificate carefully, he's very sensitive to criticism and the people around him are pretty much in lockstep and they don't want to have an open dialogue. I know that I, uh, uh, Father Spadaro, who's one of the closer in the inner circle there, Mm -hmm. he's the uh, editor of the Civiltà Cattolica, which is kind of the semi-official uh, journal of the Vatican. He and a Protestant pastor in Argentina had written a, a, an article analyzing uh, Catholic and evangelical relationships with one another in the United States, mm-hmm. and it was completely uninformed. Let's just put it right. that way. And you, you've got these two non-Americans uh, making this analysis. And I wrote a letter to him, private letter to him, and said, "Look." Uh, I deal, our organization, the Acton Institute, deals very widely with a wide spectrum of evangelicals and Catholics. I'd like to invite you to our event, which takes place in June, Acton University, thousand people, evangelicals and Protestants together, uh, I'm sorry, evangelical Catholics together, and let's have a conversation in front of them and invite them to ask you questions and have a conversation about this. Didn't hear anything. So what I did was I tweeted the letter. This is like a week after I had sent it Mm -hmm. in four languages (laughs) to make sure (laughs) it was was covered and sent the same letter, by the way, to that Protestant pastor whose name slips me in Argentina. And then I got a letter back. So, well, you know, I'm very busy and uh, I, I just can't make it. I said, we will make it happen on your schedule, and we will cover all your expenses, including whatever translation uh, wow. you know, needs you have. Didn't hear anything. So, I mean, the, 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 I don't see an evidence of real encounter, real give and take, a real good dialogue or debate. That's great to have a debate uh, in the church. I think that's healthy, but I think that's all closed off. Remember, the Pope hasn't even answered the dubia that was presented to him by four cardinals right at the beginning of his pontificate after the last Senate. Uh, now, what what the is family. the dubia? What is a dubia? So, so a dubia is, and by the way, it's not just directed at Francis. A dubia is a, um, a way in which uh, cardinals or archbishops, when there's a doctrinal question that comes up, they write a formal letter and they ask 
Is it the case? Yes or no? Is it the case? Yes or no? And this is done regularly. It's probably been done a hundred times, if not more, since the dubia I'm talking about. And it asks questions with regard to the um, document that came out after that Senate on the family. It had to do with divorce and remarriage and the integrity of mm-hmm. of the sacrament of marriage and all that that kind of thing. Uh, and the Pope just never responded. Just not. That's, uh, I, I don't think that's wow. ever happened before. <laughs> you wow. know, And to this day, it hasn't been responded to. Wow. And there, it's a reasonable question. It's, the questions that are asked are very reasonable and pro forma and professional questions that are the norm for this kind of. When there's a question, you ask the question, you, you put the question forward, and you all the Pope has to say is yes or no. Your understanding is right or no, it's not. Uh, one of the and, things that, you know, and it's brand new you bring that up because one of the things that's been in the news lately is what the Pope has said about homosexuality. Um, yes. And he says it's not a criminal, but it's a sin. And then I read that, you know, Father James Martin, you know, he writes to the Pope and he gets an answer right away, of course, because, you know, he's in handwritten the Pope, and handwritten and from the Pope <laughs> to explain. Yeah. What is your take on what uh, on what Pope Francis is saying about homosexuality? What Francis said directly in the AP interview was completely correct. He distinguishes a crime from a sin. Now, this is like Jesus with the woman caught in the act of adultery, right? right. She's she's a sinner, but let's not stone her to death. And the Pope was quite, he was a little inexact in his phraseology, and I think he clarifies it in the letter to uh, Father Martin, where he says, uh, yes, it's not homosexuality is a sin, it's homosexual activity. Mm-hmm. That is sinful. The, the church views that. But the ambiguity of that uh, and the way in which the AP put it out uh, allowed people like Father Martin to utilize it to advance an agenda that goes well beyond the church's call to love all people, uh, regardless of their their deficiencies or their sins, or to love this the sinner and hate the sin, as the old phrase mm-hmm, goes. Mm-hmm. That's hated by uh, uh, the likes of Father Martin. That notion that you can love the sinner and still not agree with their sin. I mean, Mother Teresa did it <laughs> in beautiful right, fashion. Right. She opened the first uh, AIDS hospices in the United States. Uh, so I think this is more confusion on this subject. and But the Pope, uh, to his great credit, has been very clear that homosexual activity is sinful. He, mm. he hasn't given an inch on that. You know, a lot of people are saying that Pope Francis is actually going to destroy the church. He's great. There's a schism within the church, within the Catholic Church, and this issue on homosexuality is really driving it. What do you say? I think the... I would say it's a broader question of sexuality, not just homosexuality, mm-hmm. because there there are questions about uh, divorce and remarriage and reception of Holy Communion, because if you can receive Holy Communion when you're in an irregular marriage, it basically denigrates the validity of the sacrament of matrimony. So there's that. There's contraception. There's a question of uh, priesthood, you know, which right. is, um, yeah, I think there, there are a cluster of these hot button issues, a lot of them revolving around sexuality. And of course, the LGBTQ, whatever it is, thing, (laughs) uh, the alphabet people, (laughs) as somebody (laughs) called it. Um, I think that's that's a prominent issue. And I, I do think the church needs to speak with great love 
to people who are caught in circumstances, sometimes circumstances that they didn't choose to be in. Yeah. And how, how do we express that love to people without saying you're OK? Just do, do anything you want. We'll we'll still uh, approve of it. Uh, so I think when you ask about schism, of course, uh, schism means a split. And there are always splits in the church. Well, uh, we've, that's why we got Protestants. <laughs> I was going to say you have 320 Protestant denominations. <laughs> but, but when you're talking about the Catholic Church, uh, this could threaten an institutional split. You remember mm-hmm. uh, the Reformation is a good example, by the way, coming out of Germany. Uh, yeah. <laughs> not not to put too sharp there, a point right? on it. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Maybe it's the beer. I don't know. <laughs> um, but uh, the question is, I mean, that's where I see a potential institutional threat mm-hmm. uh, and a okay. formal schism. Um, I think these subjects need to be addressed and addressed in a very um, open way. And I, I don't see the synodality uh, approach. I think it adds to the confusion. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a break right now on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. We'll be right back talking with Father uh, Robert Sirico. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. And we're back on Lighthouse Faith Podcast talking with Father um, Robert Sirico about the synod way, the synodality that is part of Pope Francis's, I don't know if it's massive changes, but it certainly is trying to some kind of course correction, I guess, within the Catholic Church. But, you know, Father, I attended uh, the seminar in Rome um, at the in September at the Holy Cross uh, Pontifical Academy, in which uh, Cardinal Mario Grech, who is the Secretary General of the Senate, he spoke uh, to journalists. And the seminar is, is for journalists who cover Rome from outside of Rome, cover right. the Vatican from outside of Rome. So he, he talked, I asked him about this idea of discerning the Holy Spirit that, you know, the scholars have written volumes on the Holy Spirit. He says, a third member of the Trinity. This is not just a simple, like, you know, you know, may the force be with you. This is not that. Um, but I asked him, like, how does the church expect people to discern the Holy Spirit without the knowledge of who the Holy Spirit is? You know, how can they right. discern between their own conscience and deep desire and a Holy Spirit? And his answer was kind of a little brusque and saying, like, well, you know, grandmothers pray and, you know, they know this, they, they know the Spirit and... What does that say to you? Well, <laughs> um, I don't know the fullness of what he was, the point he was trying to get, but the spirit doesn't contradict the scripture because the scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And discerning the spirit is done not just by subjective impulse or passion or deep desire or even deep conviction. It, it, it has to be done against the backdrop of truth because the, it is the spirit of truth. That's what the, the Holy Spirit is called by Jesus in the New Testament. So the spirit bears witness to the truth, and there's a unity between what is formally taught in the scriptures and in the doctrine of the church and in the defined dogmas of the church and the impulse of the Holy Spirit to lead us to this truth. So uh, to leave it vague, you know, I'm sitting there and I feel this impulse, I have this twitch. This isn't uh, traditional discernment 
of of the truth. It's always done against the backdrop of the church's teaching in the scriptures. You know, um, uh, C.S. Lewis, and I for, I'm going to paraphrase this, paraphrase this, and I'm going to paraphrase it badly because I can't remember the particulars of it. But he used the analogy of a map and, you know, like the ocean or something like that. It's like, you know, you can experience the ocean, you can look at it, and it's beautiful, and you have all these wonderful experiences. But unless you get a map to show you how no. to traverse the ocean to get on it, you're kind of going to be stuck on the shores. I mean, it's the same way with yeah. going, you know, let's say I want to go to, we want to do a road trip to Vermont. Well, we know Vermont's there and we can sort of kind of get in a, get on a highway someplace, but the map's going to really get us there in the best way. We can show, you know, we can actually know where we're going. And I think that's right. the difference between, you know, uh, you know, feeling the spirit and actually reading the word of God. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and what Lewis is getting to there is really the, the debate of the moment, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's objective truth versus personal impulse. I mean, we, we've come to the point in society where people think that their feelings, their passions, their inclinations determine the truth of the thing. So the person can one day identify uh, as any number of things, and that becomes the truth. Or as Pilate says to Jesus, when when Jesus says, you know, uh, I am the truth, what is Pilate says, what what's truth? What's truth? Isn't that isn't that the question today? People say, what is truth? M- meaning very skeptically, there is no such thing as truth. Well, if there's no such thing as truth, then conversation is just ended, right? Because right. what is conversation but trying to get to the truth of a thing? Yeah. And you know what? The thing about Pilate, too, is that he didn't want to know the truth. I mean, he, no. he, he threw that question out as like, oh, what's the truth? Like, nobody can answer it. Or I don't want right. to get in that discussion because I really don't want your answer. You know, I, exactly. I, and I think that's part of it. You know, I want to I want to talk about Cardinal Pell because this is such yes. a tragic story. I always I feel like it is. If Cardinal Pell were alive and with the article came out, they were he and Pope Francis were headed for loggerheads. I mean, I, I really believe yes. that this was just and and like un, unlike, you know, people, you know, like James Barton, Father James Barton, who actually had a lot of access to and still does to Pope Francis. I don't think Pope Francis would have that kind of listening conversation with a George Pell. Uh, what's your first what's your take on that? Well, uh, I know that that Pell and uh, Pope Francis had talked mostly about the financial matters, mm-hmm. uh, because remember, he was the head of that whole secretariat prior to uh, having to go to Australia to defend himself against the child abuse charges, which he was vindicated for by the highest court in the land. Um, but I don't see uh, Francis, and I don't recall any in my conversations with Cardinal Pell, uh, any reference to a real give and take with him. The other problem with Pope Francis is one goes in and has a conversation with him, come out, comes out thinking, well, he understood what I was saying. And then the reverse uh, happens to be the case. You know, it, it yeah, we've just, all had those conversations with executives. <laughs> yeah, like, right. Right. It goes, goes down go? like, you know, junk food or something. If you just, like, it goes down like really good. And then you realize, like, what just right. happened here? Yeah. Uh, I I think this, though, and I think this is very important. I want to underscore this. Pell's voice is still alive. Mm -hmm. Pell articulated in two principal documents, 
First was the Demos document, which yes. was published originally last Lent 2002, so last spring, anonymously. Mm-hmm. And then it came out after he died that uh, he had, in fact, been the author of it. And then this document, that uh, the article in the London Spectator. These two documents form his last will and testament, in effect, uh, on the moment that we're facing. And I don't think the fact that Cardinal uh, Pell has passed from this earthly scene means that he's silent. In fact, I think it's easier to talk about what he was saying. Yeah that he's not in the conversation anymore. It's stated. And the Pope had to address that, which he did in a, a kind of vague, oblique sort of way in the AP interview where he says, oh, you know, I'm, I'm open to criticism and sometimes I'm wrong. I just want people to be upfront with me. Um, well, Pell was up front and he named himself. He, he did it respectfully in mm-hmm. the Demos document by doing it anonymously and then was quite prepared to defend it openly in the uh, London Spectator piece. The, um, but then God took him. I want to get back to Cardinal Pell and the accusations, because I think this is really, really yes. important for the church and for people to understand, because yes. he suffered wrongly, accused of sexual abuse, spent more he than did. a year behind bars. Um, the yes. press, secular media, I mean, incredibly ravenous. And I mean ravenous yeah. when it came yeah. to stories about Cardinal Pell. Um and that he was like the highest ranking Catholic to be prosecuted. Um, is this in connection with what he was trying to do in the Vatican Bank? I mean, was the, you know, we know some some shady dealings were going on in the Vatican Bank. Yeah, and probably still are for all we know. I mean, there's a trial going on as we speak about all of this stuff. Um, I asked Cardinal, I mean, that was my suspicion right from the beginning mm-hmm. when it all happened because I, i've known pell for years for what 25 uh, or more years uh i knew that he wasn't guilty of that and the fact that it all came up right at the time that he was calling for an audit they had hired uh, uh, a major international uh, uh auditing company at price waterhouse mm-hmm. and the pope stopped it and that's when that's why this trial is going on now, because there's all this stuff going on that Pell wasn't any party to. And I thought to myself, I remember when I went to Rome and spoke with him about that, uh, he was always very discreet. He said, this is very serious. What I have uncovered, this was before any of this came out. Mm-hmm. What I have uncovered is years of malfeasance that's been going on. Wow. Um, remember, it's both a bureaucracy and it's an Italian bureaucracy. This is, this is a wheel in the middle of a wheel, right? Um, and I always was suspicious that somehow he was maneuvered out of there because of what he was uncovering. And uh, I asked Pell this uh, afterwards uh, when he got when he got out, and he said, "I have not found a smoking gun yet." Mm, but he was so, looking for it. Well, he, he yes. I mean, it, it, the, the logic of it made sense, but he was the kind of objective man that said, I'm not going to make wild accusations if I don't have the facts in front of me and I don't have them yet. Um, so it could be. But let, let me be very clear that these accusations that were made against him were baseless. And that's why the Supreme Court of Australia uh, completely vindicated him and even Pell's doctrinal enemies, liberals, 
uh, in Australia defended him on this count, that that yeah. this was not whatever they want to disagree with Pell on. This was not what he was guilty of. You know, one of the things about the Italian, uh, the uh, the uh, uh, Vatican Bank. Um, I know a, a neighbor of mine is an Italian journalist, very seasoned Italian journalist, journalist who has done a lot of uh, investigative work. And he actually, he said, you know, the Vatican Bank for the mafia is like offshore to what uh, offshore banks would are uh, to to um, the mafia in America. Except well, it the, is the great thing about for the for, for, for the Italian <laughs> mafia, it's right in the country. They don't have to right. go anywhere because the Italian bank, the Vatican yeah. bank, is a sovereign bank, but within the country. Yeah, and let's remember this isn't just about the Vatican bank. Yeah, it was also about the bureaucracy and the way in which it could sell properties unrelated to the ba- bank, but run the money through the bank. So there's this. A large bureaucracy that uh, that uh, basically has control over the um, assets of the Holy See that is not the bank, APSA, it's called. Yeah. And that's where a lot of the um, uh, nefarious trading that was going on, if you, if you go over the list of all of this stuff, Monsignor's uh, being caught with millions of illegal euros in planes, private planes, you know, and then the sale of the property in London. And I mean, somebody someday is going to do a television series about this. Well, actually, I think uh, uh, Netflix kind of already did. Uh, they, well, at least part of it. They've no, actually the- they've actually implicated in one of their uh, 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 episodes um, the uh, abduction and, and a probably murder of the 15-year-old Emanuela Orlandi. And it's yeah, like, they, it was, it, it's a convenient kind of, uh, you know, cause and effect there because, you know, why not blame the, mat- the mafia and the Vatican Bank all the shady dealings on a, on the, on a 15-year-old's yeah. disappearance in 1983? Um, yeah, I, I I I tend to think that that I mean, with all uh, great support for the family, uh, I just don't see that. I, yeah. I've listened to all the arguments and the crazy people who are involved in the whole thing, and uh, I think it was a very unfortunate. My my summation would be it was a very unfortunate abduction that had nothing to do. Just that she happened to be a, a Vatican citizen yeah. uh, throws all this intrigue. Yeah. And, um, now back to jo- Doctor uh, Cardinal Pell because I want to. Yes. Do you think? The stress, and I know that he died during, you know, just, you know, innocuous kind of, you know, hip surgery. Right. I've had hip surgery myself. Um, do you think the stress really is what killed him um, over well, dealing with the, the Vatican Bank, the abuse, being in prison? Um, that's a lot of stress on somebody. Well, let me say that I saw him shortly after he came out of prison. I was with him fairly regularly during this whole period of time. Um, He did not strike me as someone stressed. He did Mm -hmm. not strike me as someone in any way frazzled or, you know, you can tell, I know when I get that way, you you get kind of tense. Uh, He was serene. He was a man of prayer, did regular holy hour mass, of course, and all of that. I didn't see him as stressed. Um, I, he was 81, 82 years old. Uh, he had his own issues with his heart. I was with him last spring in Portugal, and um, we went around um, Lima, uh, just visiting various places. And mm-hmm. uh, he had trouble with his hip walking. Okay, but it, it wasn't um, 
severe and he was again very relaxed no i i i don't think it was that i i think it was just you know anesthesia is is very yeah. dangerous and um I think that was just the unfortunate unless, you know, I'm sure there are all kinds of conspiracies right now going on through um, <laughs> on the Web, you know, about about his death. But um, we, always, I we love a good just, conspiracy. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, George Weigel uh, wrote in First Things uh, in the article uh, he wrote about Pell and some of the it's things. An excellent going on with the piece. Yes, an excellent thing. Uh, he wrote about Pell. He was the most visible opponent of dictatorship of woke relativism in Australian public life. Um, and I, No and I, easy thing. Right, and no easy <laughs> thing. And I would imagine in the Catholic Church today, who is going to take that mantle on now? I mean, you, Benedict is gone. Pell is you, gone. You know, he, here's the uniqueness of Pell. He was able to do that with allow, without allowing himself to be marginalized. In other words, he was always in play. He was always, he was a man of the church uh, who worked, was judicious in his evaluations of things. You know, in, in one of the things, Bishu, who was, uh, is, I think, a nefarious character. He was a cardinal and then removed from the cardinalate. He was the one who replaced Pell, in effect, mm -hmm. uh, when, he, when he left. Um, even him. Who, who was antagonistic toward Pell, Pell defended the process that suspended Bishu uh, in, in his uh, one mm -hmm. of the two articles that I referred to earlier. Um, I don't think it's easy to replace that kind of character. You can have people who will say the same things as Pell, but to bring together his experience, his judiciousness, his sense of balance, his sense of gravitas, his knowledge. I don't, I think it's going to take a while for it to emerge. And, and as I'm saying, for this period, in the next year or so, we still have Pell in these two documents. Yeah. What we need to do is articulate what Pell said. Just say, respond to this, please. Holy Father, respond to these concerns. And, and there are other people who wouldn't agree with Pell on any number of things. So I, I think it's going to take several, in answer to your question, I think it's going to take several people and to kind of combine to articulate their varied concerns. Some are going to be more concerned about the organizational structure or the finances or the scandals or the doctrines of the church. You can have different people and different groups of people who are going to uh, uh, articulate that. And um, the, the question is going to be whether the, the Pope or the Senate or the College of Cardinals themselves are going to respond in some uh, uh, hope, hopefully helpful way. Yeah. Oh, that's another that's another discussion for another podcast talking about the future and a conclave and oh, who yeah. the next pope would be. Uh, um, mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. depending on the health of uh, of, of, of Francis. Uh, yes. Uh, Father yeah. Sirico, I want to thank you so much for being on, on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. This has been a very interesting conversation. Lauren, we have to. Go back to Rome and have a good carbonara together. Oh my gosh, I'm all for, oh my, I'm all for that. <laughs> okay, Bene. thank you so much. Thank you. God bless you and your listeners. Thank you, and uh, thank you all for listening to Lighthouse Faith Podcast. I'm Lauren Green. Have a very blessed day. 
Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.